Father, as we come before you this morning, God, um, we are humbled. We realize that uh, you've created us, and God, you've created us to have relationship with you. And because of sin and brokenness, uh, we've separated from you uh, in that, and you brought a way through your son Jesus to bring us back to you. We don't deserve that, but that's what you've done. So God, this morning, uh, each one of us here has things that we need. Will you uh, speak to us through your word and use your spirit to guide us and help us? God, let us hear what we need to hear. And uh, be with Phil as he is bringing the words, your words to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Deanie. Word studies are an interesting Bible study technique. They really are. They only require two tools to pull off. So not only are they interesting Bible study techniques, it's an easy Bible study technique. Here's the way it works. You have to have a Bible in front of you and a concordance. Now back in the day, this is what a concordance looked like. Big old book that has every word of the Bible written in it, every place that it is ever used. This particular one is called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. It was given to me when I graduated from high school by the preacher of the church we were attending at that time, Crossroads Christian Church in Hutchison, Kansas. Wayne Pittman gave this to me as a graduation present. He knew that I was going to be pursuing a, a path in ministry, and he wanted to make sure I was prepared, and this is the one thing that he knew that I would need. And man, I have used it literally exhaustively. Today, though, it is much easier to do a word study. You still need your Bible and a concordance, but you can find concordances online, and they are just as exhaustive as Strong's. All you have to do is look up websites like this, BibleGateway.com. That happens to be my favorite one. There are others. This is just the one that I use. Bible Gateway happens to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 28 or 30 different translations of the Bible available on it. And you can type in any word you want and it will show you every place that it is used in any of those translations of the Bible. Well, this particular sermon involved a word study, and I do these from time to time and actually get to walk you through some of them at different times, but this particular sermon required me to do a word study, and it became exhaustive on its, well, just on the way through it, best way to say it. Here's what I did. I went to BibleGateway.com, typed in the word bold, just like this, the word bold. And then I looked for every place that it was used in Scripture. Now, for today's message, I was using the English Standard Version of the Bible, which is what I normally preach from, the ESV. I found that the word bold is used 29 times in the ESV. Most often, it is used in the New Testament, but not always. Now, through those 29 different uses, I put together a path that led to the destination I was looking for. That's the way it works with word studies. You can go through every use of the word that you find in the Bible and find a path unto whatever destination it is you're looking for, or you'll find a path that never gets there telling you that you were wrong. Well, for today's message, I got where I was going. I got to the destination I was looking for. 
let me take you along that path. Now, there are some other spots we could stop. These are just some of the places that I did. Using the word bold, here's what I discovered the Bible teaches about it, simply from a word study. Number one, boldness is a sign of the relationship we have with Jesus. Now, listen to this. This is from Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's a direct result of boldness. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. There was nothing else outstanding about them, but the fact that they had been with Jesus put them in a category all their own. Number two, we can pray for it, meaning boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's a prayer recorded right out of Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Not only can we pray for it, but number three, it's a prayer that God loves to answer. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God loves to answer this prayer. Number four, in the New Testament, believers didn't just pray with boldness, they preached with it. Acts chapter 9 verse 28 reads, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Oh, the Bible says a lot about boldness. Take a look at number five. It wasn't just preaching. Normal conversation was powered by boldness in the New Testament. Acts chapter 14, verse 3 says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Number six. Sometimes we have to be bold when it comes to the truth. Getting out of the book of Acts, we go into Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Truth requires boldness. Sadly enough, we're losing a lot of that type of truth in the world that we live in now. Number seven, because of Jesus and all he brings to this life and beyond, boldness should be a natural byproduct of our faith. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 reads like this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold because we have the hope of a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Since we have the hope of eternal life, since we have the hope of resurrection, we are very bold, Paul said. That's all we need to fuel that type of boldness. Number eight, there will be times that we have to be bold to present what is right. The tiny little book of Philemon, it's only one chapter in the eighth verse. Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Oh, boldness is a, it is a spiritual discipline at times. It is a tool God gives us for specific reasons. And sometimes, sometimes it's hard to use. That's what was happening in Philemon. Take a look at my ninth stop on this path. Ultimately, a choice to live for God opens the door to supernatural boldness. Proverbs 28 verse 1 reads, 
The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Now, that's what the Bible teaches about boldness. And as I say, there are other places we could stop in our journey through a word study. But by the time I got to Proverbs 28, verse 1, and putting all of this together, the path that I was looking for, I got to the destination that I had in mind. It's the destination I want to share with you this morning, and it really just has two points. Number one, God encourages boldness. But more than that, he applauds it. Listen to that again. God encourages boldness, but more than that, he applauds it. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about this morning. Once I finished my word study, I decided to look around for some quotes on boldness outside of my Bible. I was looking for some quotes that other people would use to undergird the thought that I had running around in my head, and I found this one. This is from a man named Chris Jamie. I have no idea who he is. I have no idea what his background is. I don't know if he's a believer or not, so I just want to be fair and open about that. But I liked his quote. If you ever feel like an animal among men, be a lion. If you ever feel like an animal among men, be a lion. Now, when I found that, it was right after finishing with Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. So it seemed like Chris Jamie and King Solomon might have been saying exactly the same thing. Take a look again at what Solomon wrote. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now let's jump back to Chris Jamie's quote. If you ever feel like an animal among men, be a lion. Be a lion. Because it's a sign of righteousness. It's a sign of right standing with God, right relationship with God. Boldness is a byproduct. It is literally a byproduct of a growing relationship with the Lord. Part of the reason that that's true is you don't have to stand on your own opinion. You can stand on God's Word that in and of itself makes us very bold. When we have nothing but the truth of God in our hands and the truth of God to direct other people to, boldness is easy. Anybody's argument that they want to bring against whatever truth you're presenting isn't with you, it's with God. So that makes it this easy, natural byproduct of our faith, yet it is something that seems to be waning in our current society. So I want to show you why God encourages it and why he encourages it like that of a lion, for us to be that bold like a lion. Now, obviously, we could look at a lot of different people in the New Testament because the word bold or the idea of boldness is most often used there. But I can't think of anyone in all of the Bible that better demonstrates God's encouragement towards boldness than a man in the Old Testament known as Hosea. We know him better as Joshua. Now, if you're familiar with him, some of the things we're going to talk about today won't take you by surprise. If you're not familiar with Joshua, let me share just a few high points from his life so that we'll all be thinking the same way. Joshua has a book named after him in the Old Testament. 
His name and actually the person of Joshua, this particular individual, shows up 200 times, word study, shows up 200 times throughout the Bible. The name Joshua does. He was born as a Hebrew slave in Egypt. Following the Exodus, he very quickly became the servant of Moses. He was actually on Mount Sinai with Moses when Moses received the Ten Commandments. Joshua was there. Joshua became a guard at the tent of meeting, the place that Moses would go to to seek counsel from the Lord. When Moses was in the tent of meeting, Joshua was standing guard outside the door. When Moses left the tent of meeting, Joshua stayed behind to protect that place. He was one of 12 spies sent into Canaan to look over the promised land. He was one of only two that came back with a positive report. And only those two spies would be allowed to enter the promised land. Because the other ten and the rest of the Israelite people said that they didn't believe that God could deliver that land into their hands, God said that none of you will actually experience it, at least none of you over the age of 20. So Joshua and Caleb, the only two spies that came back and said God can do it, they were the only ones that were allowed to enter. Joshua would actually become the leader of the Israelite people when they entered the promised land, when they crossed the Jordan River and went into it. Moses himself did not actually enter the promised land. God didn't allow that, and there's a whole other story attached to why that is why it is. But Joshua would be the one that would take his place, and he led him in. Joshua would need wisdom to become the leader of the Hebrew people, and God gave it to him. He had wisdom beyond himself. The beginning of his story is quite intriguing. Now, here's what I mean by that. For the longest time, I pictured and literally mentally pictured in my mind what Joshua looked like. Because he was a behind-the-scenes individual during Moses' period of leadership, I always saw Joshua as kind of a timid man. Maybe small in stature and quiet in the way that he handled himself. Willing to do whatever it was that Moses asked him to do. If he needed somebody to go with him up on the mountain, Joshua was there. If he needed somebody to accompany him to the tent of meeting, Joshua was there. If he needed somebody to help with the stone tablets, Joshua was there. Whatever he needed, Joshua was there. But in Joshua chapter 1, the book that carries his name, God would have to tell him three times in the first chapter, be bold and courageous, for the Lord your God goes with you. Based on that, just in my mind, I pictured him as a very, very quiet, timid man. And let me tell you, that's a mistake. That is a mistake. I was powerfully wrong for the years that I pictured Joshua that way. And we discover the difference in the first place that he shows up in the Bible. Let me show it to you. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 8. Then Amalek, or Amalek, depending on how you say it, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. 
Now let's stop there for just a second. This is the first battle that the Bible or any extra biblical resource records of the Hebrew people having to fight as a people, as a nation. They never fought with anyone while they were slaves in Egypt. At least no record shows that they ever did. This is the first battle they ever faced. So this is post-Exodus. They're in the desert, and this is their first fight. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven." When Moses built an altar and called the name, or and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, "A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." Now let me show you just a, a few things out of this passage. Number one, it's really interesting to me that the first people that they fought were the Amalekites, the descendants of. Amal, the descendants actually of Esau. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, you know that Jacob and Esau were brothers and there was always strife between them. They were twins. There was always strife between them. So much so that it actually divided their family and Jacob and Esau were separated for years and years and years until God brought them back together in a miraculous turn of events. Jacob had actually been renamed Israel by the point that they came back together and God's blessing was on him. There is no question about that. No question at all. So Esau was having to do his thing while Jacob was doing his thing. And when the Lord brought them back together to reconcile, it would actually be Esau who took the biggest step towards reconciliation. And Jacob, because he was a deceiver by character, struggled to accept the olive branch that his brother was offering him. So even though they came back together and were reconciled, there was still division between them. Now, that's the Reader's Digest version of that whole story. But when the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants, ended up in Egypt and subsequently became slaves, Esau and all of his descendants were able to look at that, as you can imagine, through the lens of division, and they thought, well, that'll show you. Again, that's the Reader's Digest version. When Esau died, his son took over leading the clan, and then his grandson. We are talking about two generations after Esau died. That's who they were fighting against. They were great enemies by this point. In fact, with the exception of the Egyptians, the Amalekites would be the greatest enemy they would face, the Hebrew people. 
And they were brutal. They were brutal. So much so that God said, when this is finished, you wipe them out. Let me show you some of that brutality. Keep your finger there in Exodus 17, but join me in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving for you an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget." They snuck up on the tail end of all of the Israelite people and attacked the weak and the sick, those that had fallen behind. That was their battle plan. Let's get an easy victory, and by so doing, we will demoralize the Hebrew people. We will demoralize the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, and we will conquer them. Well, God had absolutely no use for that whatsoever. And so he told them, when this is all over and everything is settled down, you blot them out. You remove them from the face of the earth. That's how God felt about them. And he passed that on to the Hebrew people. So it's interesting this battle that they fought. But it is equally interesting the way the battle was won. Joshua was chosen to be the general of Moses' army, the very first general of the Israelite people. He wasn't a timid man at all. He was a warrior. He was a warrior tasked with this fight. You choose from all of these slaves, people that have never gone to war before, you choose warriors to go with you and you get in this, Joshua. And Moses said, I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to grant you the victory. And he did. And he took Aaron and her with him. And according to Jewish tradition, when he prayed, he raised his arms towards heaven. It was a posture of prayer for the Hebrew people to raise their hands towards heaven. Where it came from, nobody really knows, but it was still a posture, and he held his hands up, praying that God would grant victory. As long as his hands were raised towards heaven, they got it. When he grew tired and his arms came down, then they started to lose. So Aaron and Hur had to lift his arms back up. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Bible would teach us that when Moses died, he was 120 years old, and he was as strong that day as he was in his earlier days. So imagine it this way. At 120 years old, he was as strong as he was when he was 40 years old. So to believe that that type of supernatural strength would allow his arms to fall doesn't really make sense, that he would grow tired. Joshua's out there fighting the whole time. All Moses had to do was hold his arms straight up in the air in prayer, and he had the supernatural strength to do it. So Jewish tradition says that he didn't grow physically tired. He grew tired in prayer. He got exhausted in prayer. You ever got exhausted in prayer? That's where Moses was at. So his arms would come down, and Aaron and Hur would lift them back up. And as long as they were lifted up and Moses was praying, they had the victory. And Joshua, you know, had to be looking up on that hill going, Get them up! Get them up! And Moses did. But here's the, the third thing that I want you to see out of this. It is quite intriguing. God said to Moses, Exodus 17, 
You write this down. You write about this victory. And you read it to Joshua often. You remind Joshua what happened here today. You read it to him because he's going to need it. Forty years from now, when he becomes the leader, he's going to need to hear this. He's going to need to remember what took place here because this will make him bold. What he was really doing was reminding Joshua of his providence, God's providence. Now, God's providence is quite an interesting thing. I've been talking with you about it these past few months because it is an often overlooked characteristic and aspect of God. And it is often overlooked even in our own faith. Providence is an important thing for us to remember. Now, if you're studying it, maybe you remember this, we've walked through this, you find the first sign of it in the book of Genesis. Let me show it to you again. Genesis chapter 22. We're not going to go through the, the whole account of this. Just want you to remember what it looks like. Verse 7. Abraham has his son Isaac at God's command on the mountain where he will sacrifice him to the Lord unless God intervenes. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. It was time to go and, and bring about the sacrifice that God had commanded, that God had requested of Abraham. Requested, commanded, it's a fine line. And Abraham was willing to do it, knowing full well that God would provide. So he says to his son, God will provide. Now that's providence. God will provide. That is the first place that we find the characteristic in all of Scripture. God will provide. That's providence. But as you study it throughout the rest of the Bible, you find out that providence actually goes deeper than simply the provision of God. And there's a wonderful place in the New Testament that teaches us what it really looks like. This is found in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 28. Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, let me stop right there. Verse 31, if God is for us, the providence of God, the deepest meaning of it is found in that question. If God is for us, God's providence actually means God for us. God for us. That's what providence means. God for us. That's what Joshua figured out in Exodus chapter 17. 
As long as Moses was praying, as long as his hands were lifted towards heaven, God is for us. He is with us. Friends, I want you to know that that same question, if God is for us, then who can be against us, still stands. When the Apostle Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 8, he wrote it for us to hear, not just the Roman audience that the letter was addressed to, but for all of us. If God is for us, if God's providence is for us, then who can be against us? And boldness is tied to the providence of God. That knowledge that if God is for us, the victory is already ours. If God is for us, no one can stand against us. Be bold in your faith. If God is for us, you have no worries. That's the providence of God. I don't know who actually said this. It's an unknown author, at least unknown to me. But it actually shows us how all of this works. Take a look. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. The minute we commit ourselves to the Lord, God's providence begins moving. Oh, God encourages boldness. He encourages it. He wants to see it in His children, in all of us. He wants your faith to be bold. More than likely, God wants that and encourages it because He knows what the victories will mean to us. He's fully aware of it. So he encourages boldness. He encourages it over and over and over again. For Joshua, he would encourage it at the moment that he would take on the leadership role of the Hebrew people. He encouraged it powerfully. Join me in Joshua chapter 1, will you? Old Testament book of Joshua. Verse 7. Actually, let's just start verse 6. God's speaking to Joshua now. Moses is dead. In fact, that's how the book begins. Moses is dead. Joshua, Moses is dead. It's your turn. It's your turn. And it's going to require everything you have to lead these people in and take this land. So listen to what God says to him, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times. Be strong and courageous. You be bold, Joshua. You be bold. You got to lead them in there. You be bold. Now, it's interesting to me that God would say to him, do not be afraid. There is nothing to ever make us believe that Joshua suffered with fear. Remember when Moses said to him, hey, this is our first battle ever. I want you to choose among these slaves some men to go with you and get down there and and go put a whooping on Amalek. 
He wasn't afraid. He just did it. He just did it. Seemed like obedience followed Joshua everywhere he went. But he needed to be reminded once again, 40 years later, you be bold and courageous. You be bold and courageous. Can't you imagine God saying to him, remember what happened 40 years ago, Joshua. I'll be with you. Remember what happened. Remember what happened. I love the way Andy Stanley captures this, though. Just because we had victory 40 years ago, just because we were bold a long time ago, doesn't mean that it will flow naturally from us. Look at what Stanley says. Past boldness is no assurance of future boldness. Boldness demands continual reliance on God's Spirit. Every new experience will require us to undergird ourselves again in boldness through God. Now in Joshua 1, the Lord would say to Joshua, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You hold on to the Ten Commandments, the law that Moses passed down, everything else that he said. Don't you, don't you forget that. Don't you forsake that. And the same thing is true for us. You want to be bold, then you stand on the truth of the Word of God. That's how we started this whole thing. You hold that in your hands, and you have the first tool you need for boldness. It's the Word of God. But interestingly, intriguingly, Joshua had some other things to hold on to, experiences that would help him. One in particular I believe, was of the greatest value. Exodus chapter 33, you don't have to turn with me, just listen to this. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He was there when Moses would go and, and he would seek insight and wisdom from God. Joshua was there. He was standing right outside the door. So can't you imagine the things that he heard? As Moses would make request of God and God would respond, Joshua heard it. For 40 years, he stood guard at the tent of meeting, guarding the sacred that was his job. So when Moses would leave and he would go back among all the people, Joshua stood outside that tent as if to say, no one will enter here uninvited, not on my watch. He was the commander of the army. He was a warrior. There wasn't one person out of the Israelite people that would think, I'm going to go up there and mess with Joshua and try to get in there myself. And there is no record of anyone ever trying to do that. Joshua stood guard. And what did he hear from the Lord as he guarded the sacred? Well, it had to have been quite personal because the Bible doesn't tell us. I want you to know this. When you become a believer in Jesus, you become a guard of the sacred. The Holy Spirit is in you. 
you have the opportunity to hear from God the same way Joshua did. To hear what God has to say, to know that the Lord is guiding and directing in His providence every step you have to take. God is there. Just listen. Just listen. Oh, read your Bible. Get into your Bible. And then listen to what the Spirit tells you as you guard the sacred in your life and don't let anybody take it from you. Because if you want to destroy boldness, then you allow someone to come in and begin to destroy your relationship with Christ. To cause you to doubt, to cause you to wonder, to cause you to pull back. Don't you allow anyone to do that. You stand guard. You stand guard over the sacred. You stand guard over your relationship with Christ. You stand guard in front of your church. You stand guard in front of your faith. And don't let anybody attack it. You stand guard. And God will speak. And when He speaks, boldness will follow. Boldness will follow. Because that's what God does. Oh, He encourages boldness. Oh, He encourages boldness. One of the reasons that I believe God encourages boldness the way He does is to overshadow the other voices that we might hear. And so when we stand guard over the sacred and we choose to listen to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, it will overshadow the other voices that we hear. And I'm not just talking about the external voices that you audibly hear. I'm talking about the voices that you hear deep inside your head and your heart. Today, researchers are referring to that as self-talk. Take a look at what they have to say about it. What it means to talk to yourself. Self-talk is defined as the constant internal dialogue that most human beings experience. Self-talk stems from the combination of our conscience conscious and unconscious desires in response to external stimuli. While psychologists and neuroscientists still struggle to fully understand the inner workings of the human brain, it is widely accepted that the prefrontal cortex and amygdala greatly influence one's sense of identity on a personal and social level. These segments of the brain shape our personalities. Wow, interesting. I believe we have one more, don't we? The amygdala regulates our anxiety and stress responses, responses, such as our fight or flight response. Humans' amygdalas play a major part in our social interactions and are responsible for anxiety. Any stimulus can cause this feeling from sudden loud noises to complicated social events. Now here's what researchers are telling us. Everyone experiences self-talk, or most everyone does. Now, that does not mean audible voices, because we get to a place where our amygdala processes them in such a way that you don't hear them as voices, but they're still there. They're still there. Some of those voices are telling you that you're not up to the task. Some of those voices are telling you that you're not worthy of God's love. Some of those voices tell you that you're not strong. Some of those voices tell you, plug in whatever you want. That's self-talk. Oftentimes, self-talk brings us away from boldness. And so God encourages us towards it. He gave us an amygdala. 
It is a part of our neuroscience makeup. God gave that to us, and when He begins speaking to us, it's coming through there as well. And the joy of it when you lay Jesus over the top of this is that God's voice is louder and stronger than any other voice you might hear. And though He gave us the mechanism that allows self-talk, He also gave it to us that we might use it to hear His voice. To listen to him tell us, you're my child. You are my child. Be bold and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you. Be bold and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you. You let God change what you hear. And boldness follows. Boldness follows. Let me leave you with this. God doesn't just encourage boldness. He applauds it. God applauds it. I believe He does. We see it in different places. All through Scripture we see it. Can't you just imagine these types of things when Abel brought his very first offering before the Lord? God was there saying, well done, Abel. Well done. Cain, on the other hand, well, he didn't bring anything worthy of God and he didn't hear the applause and that caused him to kill his brother. But Abel heard Well done, way to go, Abel. On through Scripture, we could see and hear the exact same thing if you listen for it. When you read the Bible, you can hear God applauding, applauding boldness. Think what it was like when Noah swung the hammer for the very first time to build the ark. There was God going, way to go, Noah. You listened, you're doing it, way to go. This is bold, way to go. What was it like for Joseph when he faced his brothers? God was there saying, way to go. When Abraham left his homeland and and journeyed in God's command, there was God saying, way to go, Abraham. What was it like for Job when he stood before all of his friends, when he stood before everyone that could see him and remained faithful? There was God saying, good job, Job, good job. What about Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den? He wouldn't bow. He was thrown into the lion's den, and God was applauding, and God was present. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego heard the same thing in the fiery furnaces. God was applauding them. On and on and on it goes. David, when he was running towards Goliath, there was God saying, Yes, David, go! You got it! And he was applauding him. When Joseph rose to the occasion and married Mary and raised Jesus as his son, there was God applauding. When Paul changed the course of his life, there was God applauding. When you change the course of yours, there's God applauding. It is my personal opinion that that applause of heaven in regard to boldness first happens in our lives and we first hear it when we make a choice, when we decide to follow God. Most visibly, that happens at baptism. So I want you to listen to this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The applause of heaven. 
Bible would tell us that at that moment of baptism in the, the life of other people, there is more rejoicing in heaven. The angels are actually rejoicing. Heaven applauds in moments of salvation. And after that, over and over and over and over and over again in the life of a believer until we have the privilege of standing face to face with the Lord and hearing him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Boldness, boldness brings that about. Be bold, be bold, be bold. God encourages it, God applauds it. You be bold in your faith and let God's voice overshadow any other voice you might hear that you might do what he calls you to do. You be bold, oh, be bold. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, there's a lot of words. I pray that in the midst of that, we heard what we needed to hear. More than anything, Father, I pray that we got to hear your voice. I pray that we'll long to hear it regularly. That statement, well done, coming from you, oh my. I pray, Father, that we hear it loudly and often and I know that boldness is the key to it so father make us bold as your children as Christians and as your church make us bold Lord I know that's a prayer that you love to answer so I pray you will make us bold and then I pray that we will never shrink back there are other places in Scripture that tell us that we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're your children. And you're on our side. So, Father, make us bold. I pray, Lord, for those that need to take that first bold step unto salvation. Would you let that happen today? Pray for those that need to take that step into baptism. Would you let that happen today? Pray for others that are held back, scared of what you're calling them to do, what you've been pushing them towards and encouraging them towards. I pray that today, whatever, whatever barrier stands in front of them will come down and they'll hear your voice as you tell them, move forward, I'm with you. I pray they'll hear that. And there will be great reconciliation. Father, we love you. We praise you and thank you for being our God. Making it possible for us to know you through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.